just no time to revisit the relics of yesterday. Too much work. I can barely remember what I had for It's been proven that reading and retaining require muscles frequently enough to train contractions for something so secular. Unless you're into grammar erotica, an expansive The digital age has auctioned our attention span off the But I guess in one of sense, we want to sound smart at parties. Hello, wherever you are, and welcome to We Want to Sound Smart at Parties podcast. This is episode seven? Seven? Wow. Seven. Wow. And Keep I am... rolling, rolling, rolling. Love it. I am one of your co-hosts, Bjorn. I am joined today by Taylor Brown and Alex Moore. Hello, gentlemen. Hi. Hey, guys. So good to be here again. Always privileged and pleasured to see your faces. I know. I love seeing you guys even on Zoom. I know we were in the flesh once, but this is this is just as good sometimes, you know. We might have to get back to those fleshy seshies because that was a pretty hot episode. That was a hot episode. I I pretty sure I know. there was a bunch of talk about cuckolding in that episode too, which was there I can't remember. I black out. <laughs> I black out after. too. Yeah, I talk about so much sex, I have to black out just so that I don't talk about it with my therapist, which I also apparently talk about all the time as well. Bjorn, you're, we're going to be talking about a lot of sex with this book. I'll tell you what, my friend. Oh, I forgot. Welcome to We Want to Sound Smart Parties, episode seven about Frankenstein. We are The delving... sexiest novel you've ever read. <laughs> the sexiest novel you ever read. And you know what it is? It's, let's give ourselves a pat on the back because it's an actual novel this time. Yay! It is. Yay! Oh, wait, so you read it? If you're padding. <clears throat> if you mean watching The Bride of Frankenstein, then yes, I read it. Otherwise, I'm not going to stop I'm making not. this joke. The well, that's a great Brooks movie. classic. Yeah, it, it really is a great what a, movie. What yeah. a is it? Because I actually didn't watch that either. Again, I lied. Uh, this, is a, this is just a running bit. I think I, I watched it when I was like 12. I don't trust anything you say. I'm more of a, I'm more of a Blazing Saddles man myself, you know? Uh, that's a little bit of a problematic choice why, in this why is day that? and age. Why is that? Why is that, Alex? Um, well, because of its satire surrounding race relations in the classic American West. Huh. I don't really remember that part. Can you? Can you? Can you remind me? Can you? Can you Absolutely quote anything from the movie? That's no, no. no? I don't Nothing? think that's not gonna a fall quote. into I that trap. Think, no, not appropriate <laughs> quotables, especially when we're about to dive into one man's horrid mistake. And then roughly around 100 pages of him not only not rectifying his mistake, but jumping into a deep pool of self-deprecation that reminds me of myself. So let's go ahead and get into... Yeah, Frankenstein, because, uh, yeah, it's a long one, guys. So sit back, buckle in. It's going to be a three-parter, our first three-parter. So we might as well just dive the fuck right in with it's a trilogy and this happens a a lot it's not to be confused with wolfenstein which was a lot of fun that's like werewolf kind of it's close it's werewolf adjacent wolfenstein it's a it's a well it's nazis but oh that video game yeah Yeah, wolfenstein i I love that video game that was amazing i played that in doom all the time but when we intro frankenstein maybe hold on give me give me a little air because i want to i want to do a cool effect okay and now introducing Frankenstein. Oh, wait. I did it with my voice. I shouldn't do that, right? I should just that sounded it really cool. Did yeah, it? Yeah, it did sound okay, really cool. cool. Yeah, then that sounded great. We'll just keep yeah. it. Okay, great. We heard it with the effect and everything live. And it was, wow, I'm blown away. Wow. Blown away, right, guys? I, all can't right, believe, well, I can't believe all those crazy effects you put on it. Yeah, I'm pretty excited. Uh, yeah. All right. Let's, let's, let's dive in. Taylor Brown, please take it away, brother. Want to get to know everything about you. Put this quill up in that ink and uncover the truth. 
why you write the things you do and to dive into your lives like some literary slew. Explore around the dome where all these stories come from. Maybe learn a little song so we can understand who wrote this book we're going to talk about with you. Well, we're talking about Frankenstein, not Wolfenstein. Uh, different people. Actually, I don't even remember who Wolfenstein was, but Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley, who was actually born Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin on August 30th, 1797 in London, England. Uh, Summerstown. Yes, Summerstown in London, an inner city district in the northwest corner of London. Okay, <laughs> you looked way more specifically into that, so good Yeah, I think you. we could just say London. <laughs> we're just, just for the record, Alex, we're not trying to bore people to death with our podcast. Like, London, I oh, think, suffices. Oh, contraire. Oh, contraire, the northwest <laughs> corner of London uh, in this we particular wanted, alley. We wanted to bore the shit out of you with geographical references at parties. I mean, that's <laughs> just what we're talking about here apparently okay i think london will suffice i mean i don't yeah. know that okay. anyone's gonna remember anything okay more siri's gonna shut the fuck up then <laughs> so mary mary well mary godwin at this point she would later become mary shelley when she would marry percy shelley another famous writer she was she she had some famous parents as well uh her dad Definitely. was william godwin who was a philosopher and a political writer and her mother was mary wollstonecraft who was a famous feminist but she died shortly after mary's birth so she never really knew her she just 10 days and she fact. just knew of her and was inspired by her which is which is sad but also you know amazing in a way yeah um, um the the senior wollstonecraft died of a bacterial infection known as purpural fever Ooh. Uh, which is a postpartum thing. Pur- yeah, and it was Did, 10 what, days. What is it called? Purple fever? Purple fever. Pur- pur- yeah. Can they just call it purple fever? That sounds way way easier. Purple like fever. Purple fever. Purple fever. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, Mary Wollstonecraft, as Taylor noted, was a badass feminist, and she wrote uh, basically one of the first pieces of uh, detailed feminist philosophies. It's called hmm. A Vindication for the Rights of Woman, hmm. um, which responded to the chauvinistic political theories of the 18th century that believed that women should not be recipients of a rational education. Huh. William Godwin, her father and uh, the senior Mary's husband, was basically the first anarchist as well. So what? this is a punk rock fucking family we're Dude, talking about. Dude, that's hella here. punk rock. I love yeah, this. Yeah, super punk. Super punk. Yeah. Good, they're interesting people, uh, these folk. How? What makes uh, him the first anarchist? Why is he the well, first? He, I mean, he was he was the the leading inquirer of the theory. He uh, within really? the span of a year, yeah, he put out an inquiry concerning political justice, the first modern work to expound anarchism, and things that uh, <clears throat> rather. And Things As They Are, or The Adventures of Caleb Williams, a fiction novel written as a call to end the abuse of power with tyrannical governments, which used the character Caleb Williams to show how legal and other institutions can and do destroy individuals. Whoa, we should read that book, too. That sounds awesome. Yeah, let's keep it in the family, uh, yeah. because apparently everyone in the 19th century liked to keep it in the family anyways, if you know what I mean. zing a zing zing There's actually a lot of uh, works referenced in this novel itself that would be uh, interesting stuff for us to explore. Cool. Yeah, pretty dense with yeah. its references. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we got some Paradise Lost going on there. We, mm. got, we got some more occult stuff going on in there. It's, gonna, it's, uh, it's uh, interesting. Well, I'd imagine there's occult stuff because 
don't they raise someone from the dead? Right. In yeah, yeah. That's kind of like the heart of the story. <laughs> Got it. Right. Kind of. It's kind of at the centerpiece. <laughs> now here, oh, hold on. I, I do have something to add though to the podcast. Did a little bit of research. Turns no, out, you didn't. Yep. Turns out, little known fact: the monster is not called Frankenstein. It's Doctor Frankenstein, <laughs> and the monster is not called. That's a common mistake, guys. Lots of people make that. So go ahead. Tell us the real stuff. I actually like, do. A lot of people do make that. They, still they do make that mistake, but little yes. known fact: it's Doctor. I think Al, you even made that mistake to me in a text. You called you called the monster Frankie. Unless you just yeah. want to call him Frankie, then I'm sorry. Oh no, we can't call him Frankie. No, that's we, confusing. No, we, that's going to be too confusing. We're going to. I mean, call but him the if you really think about creature. it, the monster is a member of the Frankenstein family. That's yeah, true. Because Victor Frankenstein, the Frankenstein the that we'll be referring to, he is the creator. Right. Yes. Can we call but, him Frankie Junior? We can call him little Frankie little Jr. Frankie Junior. I actually struggle with calling him the monster because he's actually a really sensitive guy. Right. So yeah, that's little Frankie Junior. I think little he's Frankie not Jr. Li- works. He's not little though. We can he's call definitely him. Well, but little. that's the joke. Like you call the big guy your friend, you call him tiny because like that's funny. You call hey, him Smalls, get over here. Yeah. Smalls. Hey, little Frankie Junior. And then he's like, Oh, hello. <laughs> okay, know? we'll call him little Frankie Junior. I, I like, like little Frankie Junior. Little Frankie yeah, Junior. Little Frankie Junior is good. Or FJ um, for super short. FJ. Super, like, super short. But then I'm just going to be thinking of foot jobs. We can't call him Right. We already got foot jobs on the mind. This is. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> okay, now I've completely lost track of where we are. What's what? what we were talking we're, about Mary Shelley? We're just. We're talking shop. We're talking Mary. Everything about you. Tip this quill up in that ink and uncover the truth. Why you write the things you do? Dive into your lives like some literary Mary Shelley's whole family, which is really just Mary Wollstonecraft Godwin before she married Percy Shelley. But her family met, uh, or rather her parents met, when they went to see Thomas Paine speak. And William Godwin, the uh, Mary Shelley's father, remarked that evening that he heard too much of Mary Wollstonecraft and too little of Thomas Paine. So apparently the feminist Mary Wollstonecraft was just a fucking badass and was basically just commandeering this entire uh, discourse like I'm doing right now. So let's continue. That's a cool mom and an anarchist dad. That's rad. God, that's cool. Yeah. Anarchist dad's a great band name too. That is wow. pretty good. A lot of good things popping up here. Well, you would think that you know someone of this esteem would have a formal education, but she did not have a formal education, which is surprising when you read this book because it's magnificently written. Um, and her it's command very of, well written. That's Mary Shelley. Yeah, we're talking about we're back to Mary Shelley, or who's still Mary Godwin at this point. But okay. um, obviously, there was a lot of you know uh, education surrounding her just with her parents. Her dad kept an extensive library, so she's basically self-taught. Um, and I'm, and she read much of her, you know, her, her mom's works as as well. So that, that truly shaped her. Um, and in fact, she could often be found reading sometimes by her mother's grave. So, you know, her mother still meant a great deal to her, even though they never really, uh, had a, uh, a relationship in the, uh, the current plane that we inhabit. So she's kind of like a latter day, uh, Matt Damon, right? Like she's just a janitor by day, Explain. and like at at night she kind of solves equations. Sure, <laughs> like Goodwill Hunting. Wow, that's yeah, a, that's a, self-taught. Th- that's that's definitely a stretch. And it's funny that you brought up Matt Damon because in this novel, it um, is Mary it is? She- Mary Shelley. <laughs> Mary Shelley spells demon, 
in the old English way, D A E M O N. So every Isn't time that technically I, pronounced diamond. Like I, but like yet, that? which just adds to the point. Funny thing that Bjorn brought up, Matt Diamond, because he was all over this fucking novel. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. He was everywhere. You've got your finger on the pulse, even though there is no pulse with Lil Frankie Jr. No pulse with Lil Frankie Jr. Yeah, I'm a mistaken genius. That's all there is to it. Okay, cool. So in 1814, uh, Mary began a relationship with poet Percy Shelley. And obviously they were going to Mary because Mary Shelley is her name. So spoiler alert. Um, but they <laughs> did. I'll actually let you describe this. What? What? Where would they start meeting each other secretly? Oh, my God. This one's really hot and bothering. Um, so, OK. In 1814, as Taylor was saying, Shelley struck a rather home wrecking chord as she engaged in a romance with one of her father's political followers, Percy Shelley. Also, his middle name, we just can't leave out. It's Bishy. It's hilarious. Say, <laughs> it, little say it with me. He's a bishy. bishy. Little baby Bishy. Little bishy. Percy Bishy. Bishy. So, um, Percy Bishy. Who, and again, he was a political follower of William Goldwyn, Mary Shelley's father, um, and also kind of like tried to win William Goldwyn's daughter from him by promising to pay off his debts because the family was in debt quite a bit. Um, anyways, that's neither here nor there. Basically, he was trying to court Mary Shelley, and they started meeting uh, secretly when Mary was 16 and old Bishy was 21 at, uh, at her mother's grave in the St. Pancras Churchyard in London. And uh, on one really hot, sweltering night, Percy announced that he could no longer hide his ardent passion for her, quote, wild, intellectual, unearthly looks, leading Mary to proclaim feelings akin and bringing about the loss of her V-card to Percy Ooh. atop her mother's grave. Whoa, that is so hot. A lot of time spent at her mother's grave. She was. That's yeah. just Whoa. where she, like, that's where she, I mean... Dude, talk about feminism and anarchism and fucking on your mom's grave. Dude, again, this shit is punk rock, dude. That Anarchy is so in the UK. Punk rock. Yeah, but yeah, she, so she, punk rock. She was also a little bit of a homewrecker because um, yes. uh, Percy was still married to his first wife, Harriet, um, when he and uh, 16-year-old Mary actually fled England together. And they actually brought along Mary's stepsister, Claire, um, who they brought along because she could speak French, but also there's, there's a, this is a very, uh, the, there could be a movie about just these people. Because, just the affairs. Yeah. yeah. Just the affairs. It's very much Woody <laughs> Allen territory, um, in terms of just not only the incestuous stuff that happens with Woody Allen on, on a real level, but just in terms of all the mixing yeah, of definitely. the relationships. Oh man. Woody Allen, RIP dude, rest in peace. We love you, Woody. Um, you know what I'm saying? You will be missed. Oh, he's not dead? Well, anyways, if he, I, he's a genius, He may though. as well be dead. He may as well be dead because he's dead to society. But He is dead to society. I yeah. do have to say I've always had mad respect for Woody because Woody, he thinks ahead. You know what I'm saying? He goes, I'm going to adopt a daughter, right? When one is adopted, Bjorn, be careful. You're going to want to make sure. Be careful. Be careful, Bjorn. You have an eye on the prize. You want to adopt hot. You know what I'm saying? Just in case. You want to hedge them bets. Just like old Woody. <laughs> Okay, just for the listener uh, to interject here, we all operate as individual franchises. Um, our our enterprises are are very unique to ourselves. So Bjorn's uh, Bjorn's viewpoint does not affect Taylor's or mine. Uh, just just to go ahead and clear the air there, since Taylor Taylor just endorsed. Uh, I'm not. Never mind. Let's move on. 
Right. So to be clear, um, Mary and Percy, they ran away with uh, Mary's stepsister, Claire. And Percy... Yeah, Percy is, you know, was by all means a bit of a playboy, polyamorous, as he did Ooh. also date Claire, so which is so Mary's stepsister, which was also and also keep in mind, he's uh, he just had a, a son with his wife, Harriet, in 1814. Still married. Still, Still married, married. Yeah. So Okay. So there's a lot of complicated feelings and emotions I feel going on with Mary here. Like you know, she harbored a lot of jealousy, all things considered, and you know, she's a teenager so right. obviously like and it also but you know it's, it's it's hard to imagine being uh in in those shoes specifically especially considering her background her upbringing that you know she's with a, a famous and, and, and mary was 16 when she met this famous she's writer 16 yeah Oof. yeah how old 16 he? and he was 21 yeah and and of course, like any good movie, that's not the only wrinkle because no, no, Percy Percy wasn't really the jealous type, uh, mm, and it clearly. seems to he actually wanted uh, Mary and his writer friend Thomas Jefferson Hogg to become lovers. <laughs> hog wild baby, let's hit it! Yeah, I'm hog wild baby. And Thomas so Jefferson Hogg. Yeah, and obviously Mary, she's cool. Mary's cool. And yeah, she's she's, she's obviously living at this kind of free love lifestyles because she sure. did not she, so she didn't dis, dismiss the idea either. Sure. Since in principle she you know believe, believed in free love and I'm sure was actually influenced by her mother. And if you take into the fact that she was banging Percy on her mom's grave, it all kind of it comes together. It comes together. Also on on <laughs> but her I heard upbringing. I heard Jefferson Hogg though had some really disgusting bo though he and that's what, and they, I think that's what killed it because it didn't seem like they actually. Ever they went, did not boink. It did not go yeah. there, but they flirted. Right. But they didn't oink. Probably it was probably that smelly hog bo that didn't allow him <laughs> to seal the deal, so to speak. Also, to expound on Taylor's point about her upbringing and all these complicated feelings that Mary Shelley is is or Mary Godwin to be Mary Shelley is feeling right now. Although documented in multiple sources that Shelley had an idyllic upbringing, Shelley recollects in her own words that she had a quote excessive and romantic attachment to her father that was likely born out of his neglect because after Mary's mother died, uh, William Godwin was left to raise her and her uh, stepsister. Well, he was to remarry and then to raise her and her stepsister alone. So it's kind of a complicated upbringing, especially, you know, not even taking into account that one was a feminist and one was an anarchist in the early 19th century. Right. And keep in mind, her father did not, really approve of her relationship with Percy. Not at all. He, he kind of disowned her after that, and that's partly why they had to escape. And Wait, you know, hold but, on. He's an anarchist with rules? I guess so, yeah. He's co- anarchists are complicated. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, like, dude, that's anarchy, bro. Like, your, your daughter's going to date whoever she wants. Bjorn, to give you a little bit of backstory on yeah. that, I know we touched on it, but um, uh, Percy agreed to... As he was fraternizing with William Godwin and learning of the anarchist principles, he agreed to bail him out of his debt. Oh, that's right, now, the debt. after the love affair between Percy and Mary started, William kind of found out that Percy didn't have that much coin in his satchel. So Ooh. he might have been swindling that old bishy energy into just getting Mary Godwin off of William's hands to make her Mary Shelley one. Damn, son. Yeah, Percy Shelley's like imagine him played by Robert Downey Jr. Cool. For sure. You know, oh, yeah. let's just let's just cast him. Okay, I like it. 
Sweet. That's as far as I'll go. I just Who's think. the dad then? Yeah, and we got cast everybody now. Um, who's Mary okay. Shelley? Uh, ooh. ooh who's Mary, Mary? Shelley? Mary Shelley is Sarah Paulson. I'm gonna I, go Sarah. I was Paulson gonna say Aubrey one. Plaza because she seems kind of like she would fuck on top of a grave. I like Aubrey Plaza. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's hot. Good choice. You know, because she's kind of like she could be into the call, and she'd be like, "Just do me on the on the cemetery wall or cemetery." Yeah, and, be, and it'd be kind of a funny movie too. <laughs> the tombstone, Taylor. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it'd be kind of a funny movie. She'd have a little clever. You know, she seems like. Although yeah, we'd have to, we'd, we'd have to either have this be like a a '90s Robert Downey Jr. just to make the age thing make sense. Sure. Yeah. Otherwise, sure. it would look weird. Also, sure. the cocaine, <laughs> the the coked out. Robert Downey Jr. I'm sure cocaine wasn't a big thing in the early 19th century, but mm. Percy strikes me as the kind of guy who'd be bishying it up. You know what I mean? That yeah. old bishy. Time and place, he'd be the guy. Yeah, time totally. And place. Um, so they were all gallivanting around Europe for some time, uh, but as Al alluded to, they weren't very well off financially, no. and they lost their first child in 1815. This is Percy um, and Mary? Percy and Mary, who was yes. a, a daughter who only survived for a few days. Also, uh, still ma- Percy's still married at this time. Let's keep that in the back of our minds. Still married. And so we're getting around to the time where uh, Mary Shelley writes Frankenstein, which is in 1816. And that year, the following summer, uh, the Shelleys were in Switzerland with Jane Claremont, Lord Byron, and John Polidori. Uh, the group entertained themselves one rainy day by reading a book of ghost stories. And Lord Byron actually suggested that they should all try their hand at writing their own horror story. Whoa. And this is how, yes, this is how Frankenstein was born. So Frankenstein's a dare from Lord Byron? Yes, basically. And there's a lot of other extenuating factors that plays into this. And Taylor and I were discussing this earlier this week. Uh, It was the summer of 1816, as Taylor was just saying. The summer Um, of love. Well, it wasn't the summer of love. It was actually known as the year without a summer due to the week-long eruption of Indonesia's Mount Tambora the year before on April 5th, 1815, of which the impact would last as the countless tons of volcanic ash would circulate the upper atmosphere for years to come, blocking out sunlight and lowering the average temperatures globally. And it remains as one of the largest volcanic events in recorded history. So this is how... Yeah, this is how they arrived... In Geneva. Like how how many degrees did it go down? Did they say? I think it was like five or six or seven. Are you degrees shitting globally. me? Yeah, it was a big it was a big thing. Dude, and we should again, get another. Why don't we just do another volcano thing right now? You mean a film volcano? No, like why don't we have another volcano go off to stop all this global warming? <laughs> well, the the only reason it's important to talk about this here is because when they arrive to Switzerland, as all of this is going on. Um, and again, as Taylor mentioned, this this dare by Lord Byron, they were confined to the house because the weather was shite, still because of this volcanic eruption For almost real? a year later. That's yeah. insane. Yeah. Huh. Crazy. And as we'll see throughout the story, too, it, it the, the weather really impacted the novel. Uh, Frankenstein's downfall, Victor Frankenstein, that is, is heavily impacted and written almost through the changing of the weather itself, uh, which seems to be imparted from what Mary was going through at the time when she was dared by Lord Byron to write this novel. So yeah, the weather itself and really the coming and going of seasons is itself dictating the, the pace and mood of the book entirely. Completely. Yeah. How long uh, did it take her to write it? Well, she finished it in bath after they had let this left this jaunt in Switzerland. Um, But 
I, she started it there. It took her a while to actually drudge up the idea. So, and Taylor, I, I don't know if you read into this, but when Byron proposed this, this dare, uh, basically him and Percy didn't even finish their stories. Mary was the only one to come out on top. I think Byron started a vampire story that never was finished. And I don't know what Percy did minus Real like original. Bang, everything else that walked. Real original vampire. I think he did vampires and Percy did uh, werewolves. <laughs> oh, werewolf. <laughs> there we go. Finally, some payoff on that werewolf joke the from the first episode. Six episodes. Werewolf. <laughs> I knew it. I knew it. A little, known, a little known unfinished work of Percy Shelley. You are off the beaten path, sir. Um, <laughs> yeah. It, did I read? I think I read that she uh, dreamt up the idea. I think she also said that one night, finally, uh, that she was said perhaps a corpse would be reanimated. Um, and I, that was the spark of the idea, was just a, simply a body being brought back to life. And I think that was brought on by ruminating for a couple of days unsuccessfully on a subject for the ghost story, but followed an evening fireside discussion between the three centered around the nature and principle of life, where reanimation and galvanism were primary topics of discussion. Mm -hmm. So I think Mary then experienced a possession of her imagination that began unraveling the scenes that would constitute the majority of Frankenstein. Um, and actually someone even pinpointed almost the exact day and time that it happened. Um, in 2011, an astronomer by the name of Donald Olson concluded via data about the motion of the moon and stars that her move, her moment of creative clarity came to her between two and 3 AM on June 16th, 1816. How the fuck does he know that? So he went to the Genevan Villa because this guy was just apparently a massive Frankenstein fan, which, uh, you know, he's a Franken a fan. People. He's Franken. a Franken fan. He's a Franken yeah. fanatic. <clears throat> Frankenfile. Not to be confused with Al Franken. Frankenfile. Frankenfile. <laughs> Come on now. That's genius. Franken. So, anyways, Homie went to the villa and, like, you know, pulled out his charts and graphs or whatever uh, astronomers do and basically was able to conclude with the, the placement of the moon what time you know what hour of time that she would have had this vision as taylor was saying she dreamt this you know this awful apparition of this like put together monstrosity um and that that became that became old old little frankie jr huh yep um a little bit more on uh how life ended up with mary and percy um, they did end up having a son that same year, and she actually named him William after her father. So, you know, even though he wasn't having any of her, she was still like, I love you, Dad. Um, here's our, here's your grandson. He's got your name. Isn't it cute? Um, don't know if that worked. But uh, in, uh, in actually Claire Claremont, the stepsister who Percy was also dating, also herself had a little bit of a tryst with Lord Byron. So that's kind of mm. completing the romantic one, two, three. Yeah. Four, quite a few five. angles on this one. Pentag Pen Pentagon. The, yeah. That's a lot of people involved. I, I missed of, that. Her name's Claire Claremont. Claire Claremont. Claire Claremont. Yeah. <laughs> Real original parents. They really, they really <laughs> thought that one out. Sucking genius guys. Well, after, and after they had, or maybe this, did they get married before or after they had their son, Taylor, as far as Mary and Percy are, are concerned? Ooh, couldn't tell you. Because this is what happened with their marriage that kind of rectified the uh, the ostracization of the the Godwin family of, of Mary's father. Um, 
I guess after they left Switzerland, where the whole story was conceived, uh, they moved to Bath, England, where she would finish the novel. Um, but they learned the news of Percy's wife's suicide, who, again, still married at that time. She drowned herself in a lake in Hyde Park. And this is where shit gets a little complicated, because Harriet's family, strangely enough, with full support from Mary, blocked Percy's attempts to assume custody of his two children with Harriet. And then his lawyers advised him to improve his case by marrying, thus bringing about the holy matrimony between him and Mary Shelley. And doesn't, so like, doesn't Percy eventually get drowned as well? Isn't that what Yeah, you said? but this is later. Yeah, yeah but I just mean his wife drowned. Now he drowned. That seems pretty uh, wild. Coincidence? Coincidence? I Sounds like, I think Mary's out there drowning fools. <laughs> That's my You know guess. what, dude? That's probably not too far from the truth because one of the overall... You know, story arcs of Frankenstein is basically like this impending doom that comes after Victor Frankenstein creates this monster. So, yeah, because like if you have sex with, say, like a virgin, right, you become very attached. But if you have sex with a virgin on top of their mom's grave, they become hyper attached to you. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that establishes a bond that is uh, even more and deeper in strength. Yeah, sure. It's got to be. I've never fucked on a grave, so I can't tell you. You haven't fucked on a grave? No. Brown, have you fucked on a grave? Not yet. Not yet. (laughs) I mean, I listened to that Father John Missy song a number of times, and it sounds like he fucked in Hollywood Cemetery, but... Yeah, but that that could have been anywhere. Right, that doesn't count. I believe it's at a... Although, if you're going to do it there, you might as well do it on, like... um, We should let this dead guy sleep. (gasps) Oh! Maybe he's talking about the story of Frankenstein in that in that uh, in no, that song. No, he's probably just talking about who's buried Jimmy Jimmy Hendrix or something. Aww. Jimmy Hendrix is buried in Seattle, I believe. I don't know. You can cut that out. I don't know. I can't even remember who's buried at Hollywood Cemetery. Um, one of the Ramones. <laughs> that sounds right. I think it's Woody like, Allen. Woody Allen's buried. Woody, Woody Allen's, Allen's buried there. He's buried there. <laughs> He's buried there. Here lies the greatest genius of our time. All right, with his ability to adopt hot. You know what? No one's ever said. I'm going to say it for the first time on this podcast in the history of humanity. You heard it here first. Rest in power, Woody Allen. Ooh, rest in power, Woody. R.I.P. So after that beautiful detour that we just took in conversation, let's uh, jump back to some final bits and factoids about the novel itself before we dig into the text. Um, Shelley completed Frankenstein's manuscript in mid-1817, so maybe about a year after she started it. And volume one was first published to be followed by two subsequent volumes on New Year's Day. 1818. Huh. And here's the weird thing. It was issued anonymously. The author's name was not on the front of the first three volumes that were published in the first run of Frankenstein. Um, the only thing that it had was a preface written for Mary by Percy. And as Taylor was talking about earlier, um, Paradise Lost. It had a excerpt from Paradise Lost on the cover of this first volume. And to quote that, it was... Did I request thee, maker from my clay, to mold me, man? Did I solicit thee from darkness to promote me? Which kind of sets the feeling for the entirety of so the So she novel, put a quote from well. another famous book on the front of her book? A poem, but yeah. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I'm going to do that yeah, with she- everything. I'm going to put another better podcast on the front of this podcast just until like people listen. <laughs> 
And then the second edition of Frankenstein was published actually over five years later, on August 11th, 1823, this time in two volumes as opposed to three, following the success of the stage play Presumption or The Fate of Frankenstein, which was written by Richard Brinsley Peake. Then this is actually kind of interesting too, as we're going to talk about over the course of these three or so episodes. There's been a lot of uh, misconstruing of what Frankenstein is about, uh, like you know, calling the monster Frankenstein and this whole idea that he was animated by, you know, electricity and this thunderbolt. But yeah, a lot of a lot of people remember the famous two word line in Frankenstein that never actually happened. He has risen. It lives, but yeah, basically the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, right. I was close. That was a guess. That was really good. It lives was actually penned by this playwright, Richard Brinsley Peake, who made Frankenstein more popular than maybe it would have been. um, Because at at this point, Mary Shelley actually put her name on the cover too. in the second public. So it's the guy who wrote the play who wrote it lives. Yes. Oh, and that's like and that's the famous kind of, line. And that's kind of the start of like how people started taking the story of Frankenstein and turning it into their own thing. I mean, people, it seemed like all these adaptations and readaptations, they kind of put their own flavor and storyline into it. And by the end of the game of Telephone, like I was, this is my first time reading this. You, Taylor, you had read this before, right? Yeah, I had, yeah. I read it in, in college. I actually crammed it the night before a final. Oh, did yeah, did you cram it? it? Most of did it. Did you cram it? Did you cram it this time too? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> That's baby. Now we we know Bjorn didn't read it, so I'm I didn't read it. I don't have that. to read it. I, but this was my first time reading it, and of course I've seen like snippets of films and the Halloween costumes and shit. And I've always thought that all of these things that I've seen were actually a part of the story. And I was very intrigued to find that like. Homie wasn't animated by electricity. And, Aww. you know, Victor Frankenstein didn't scream, it lives. And, I like, would actually, well, I shit. wouldn't say there he wasn't animated by electricity. It's just so vague. It is vague, but it is vague, but it is, um, it is implied, especially with some text that occurs a, a couple chapters before that, where he makes a specific note. Uh, of him observing a lightning storm and kind of yeah, that being his introduction I, to electricity. So th- otherwise, that that whole section wouldn't have been included, I don't think. Especially since yeah. I, the version I'm reading is the, I think you too, is the 1831 version. The 1831 version, Which yeah. seems to be just like a more fleshed out version of the book right. for the most part. Yeah. Just seems to have added details, especially in the beginning, which is a lot of where this backstory happens. Yeah, the 1831 version was 13 years after the first publishing, too, and eight years following the second. And the 31 version, as Taylor and I read, is the popular edition. It was one volume that was published, and as Taylor was just saying, it was heavily revised by Shelley, um, which included a lengthy new preface, um, and sh- which shed some of the ideas of the origin story of like the whole Swiss Alps thing and the Byron thing. Right. Uh, but this edition is the one most widely published and read, um, although many scholars apparently prefer the original text due to its preservation and genuineness of the original spirit of the time it was written. Oh, and also because they're insufferable uh, dicks. I mean, Jesus, shit. of course they have to, those hipsters. Purists. Oh, uh, purist hipsters. It's like, I only like the original. <laughs> you should actually put that in the theme song, Al. I only like yeah. the original Frankenstein text. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, ugh, I will. So... Maybe I'll make that. Maybe I'll make that note. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're gonna have to start that. We're gonna have to only start adding that into the intro music. The episode starting from here, or in right, order for yeah. that joke to really make sense, 
here in episode seven and right. henceforward. Just okay. <laughs> we got to be legit about it. We can't go back and re- no, retroactively change the intro music to episode. You're right. Six, if you've hung on this long to episode seven, dear listener at dear listener at we want to sound smart at parties, smart at parties.com. Um, we commend you first of all. And then second of all, we know that you're going to really be thrilled by that kind of comic acumen. You know, that's the really the razor sharp, rapier wit that you're looking for is stuff like that. You know, insider ball about um, hipster styles of Frankenstein. Why is it called Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, by the way, too? Did someone else try to, like, cop it? Well, again, the first volume or the first three volumes, the first time it ever saw the light of day, did not even have the author's name on the front. Oh, and then okay. it became made popular. It, made, it was made popular by a stage play, play. right. And then she she published it in two volumes, finally put her name on it, but it really didn't even get popular until the version that Taylor and I read, yeah. which is, again, the 1831. Imagine okay. it, it's like this is the director's cut for your Got brain it. to understand. Right. Okay. So, yeah, for like, for, <laughs> but for my brain to understand, though, when I hear director's cut, I always think of Blade Runner, which my uncle made us watch every Christmas. Shout out to my uncle. Every Christmas, which I found out later, it's not a Christmas movie, nor do other families do no, this. It's nowhere near it. But we watched yeah. Blade Runner. I never know which version of Blade Runner I'm supposed to watch. Thank you. Exactly. And my uncle, because we watched this since we were little, you know, first there's the there's the theater. Well, you never watch the theater cut, the the, the cinematic version. That one's trash. That's, u- then, that's usually why the other cuts exist. Right. Exactly. Then there's the director's cut, and then there's that third cut. Which is like, I forget what they call it, some sort of deluxe cut. I think it's the director's cut you want to watch. I don't remember either. But my uncle, I remember him one Christmas getting all bent out of shape about it. And we had to watch. I, I should have more information about this. Is guys, the really. third cut called the final cut? There you is go. Is that what you're getting? Yeah. Okay. Possibly. So we read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, the final, final cut. cut. Perfect. Yeah. Love mm-hmm. that. Ridley Scott approved. Yeah, Ridley there's, Scott a, approved. there's a final cut for, for Blade Runner. Are you looking well it up? The, I yeah, think I'm Final Cut's the one you want to watch. I mean, it sounds it's right. It's probably five yeah, it hours I mean, long. It does sound right. No, sounds that's correct. Sounds, sounds good. It like feels it. like the Frankenstein Final Cut could have used an edit. Taylor, do you agree with me well, on that? Well, the edit was more stuff. I mean, so the giving her the opposite stuff. note. Yeah. <laughs> right. right. And I, I think that's the like. same note for Blade Runner because they already made the movie version. It's clear why they made that because it's more uh you know palatable for the audience and now you got the final cut it's too much this version of the book feels like um again for your brain to understand if you were to build a world for a movie or a tv show and you you thought even the all the backstory was really good and you're like fuck i just want to include all this shit that's what this cut is oh okay cool i like that my tiny brain can't understand and also (laughs) on that note too and maybe one of the last kind of interesting points of this backstory stuff because there were so many differences between the 1818 1823 and 1831 editions uh people believed and there was much argument and and contention surrounding this people believe that percy shelley actually added to the original manuscript and was more of a co-author but mary spoke sternly on this Um, In the 1831 edition, I think that was published at the time, quote, I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely one train of feeling to my husband. And yet, but for his incitement, it would never have taken the form in which it was presented to the world. So I think he helped, but I don't think he wrote any of this. 
Well, yeah, he helped like anyone else would help. Given who she she was, I don't think she needed his help. I think she Fuck probably no, I, dude. She was a feminist anarchist. She didn't need anyone. Yeah, who fucks help. on I'm sure graves. she bounced some ideas off him, and he maybe he gave her a note here and there. But I doubt it was. I feel th- I feel like I feel like everyone going, oh, Percy must have had something to do with. It. I think it's like I think you're just. Um, a little bit of a misogynist problem. Yeah, I think you're afraid to have this badass feminist anarchist woman finish an entire timeless novel on her own, you fucking small dick prick. Yeah, get your um, toxic masculinity out of here. Yeah, get your toxic masculinity. Also, it's like, obviously, like any endeavor, your your significant other will quote unquote help you in a way because, I mean, you're bouncing sure. ideas off and you're talking yeah. and he's yeah. a writer. I mean, it's not like, but she still wrote the motherfucker like, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, just because, you know, Ridley Scott comes home one night and his wife gives him some notes and says, maybe you should make another cut. It doesn't mean, you know, she's... Give me the final cut, baby. Yeah, it's not yeah. like she's responsible for editing the whole motherfucker, you know? Well, putting quite of this confusion to rest, <laughs> the editor of a facsimile edition to the original manuscript, Charles E. Robinson, concluded that Percy's contributions to the book were no more than what most publishers, editors have provided authors, or, in fact, what colleagues have provided to each other after right. reading each other. There other's you go. From the horse's right. mouth. From the, the horse's editor. mouth. From the horse's Who else mouth? would know better? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Debate <laughs> over. Like, so why is there even a debate? Yeah, why is there even a debate? Yeah, it's it's, like, it's so silly. It's, it's so, so stupid. Silly. It's like, of course he's going to have nominal perfectly reasonable input as any like husband who's also a writer would have it's not like she just is like gonna throw it out in the world without running it by him a couple ideas but it doesn't mean yeah they're banging you know they're all shut up in this like like, villa in geneva too of course he's like peeking over her shoulder and like babe maybe that needs to be more poetic because he was a poet also Uh, babe maybe you should bang my friend hog yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, babe. babe, can I bang babe. your stepsister? <laughs> I mean, is I already it? am, but is it cool? <laughs> is it cool? Like, I don't mean to be a bishy about it. I, but... I heard that Hog was a sea captain, too, and that he had this, like, whole ship and stuff. And then what was our joke from the other episode where we had a sea captain, where we had a cuckolding thing? Didn't we have a cuckolding <laughs> situation? No, the cuckold, the in cuckold Corsican... was in our last novella. Yeah, the Corsican Brothers. Did we have Alexander a Corsican Dumas. cuckold? It w- <laughs> Again, I black out a second. That's we stop the second we start rolling, Taylor, our our actual host, our de facto host, blacks out. So we I think can't I really talked the least of this whole podcast. No way, no way, yeah, no way. All right, no well, way. okay, I, I definitely guess Al number special- one, you're number two, and I'm one hundred percent number three. Do I, I talk to the most? Myself- well, I have right, to cut I'm myself sh- out all the time because it's inappropriate, like the whole Woody you Harrelson adoption thing. Yeah, the whole adopt hot thing's got to go. Yeah, it's got to go. <laughs> adopt hot's got to go. Okay, so I'm going to shut the fuck up then because apparently I talk the most. Oh, but no, it's, it, it's, it would. Hold on. I need you to talk. I don't like to talk a lot. <laughs> okay, we're, let's get into the text, but just so you guys That's can make fun slight. of me and call me Siri again, I just wanted to let you know <laughs> the word count. Of Frankenstein, because that's please, my thing. Tell me the word you, count. Okay, just okay. to be clear about the word count thing, the reason we gave you shit and called you Siri was because you didn't do the thing that you should have done, which was like between 40,000 and 50,000. You were like 3,999. <laughs> like, you were so fucking specific, man. You could have just said like between 40, anything over 40K is a novella. You could have just said that. Instead, you were like between 1,599 pages and 17,999 pages. It's like, round up, man. Just round up. Anyways, <sighs> go ahead, Siri. Well, I'm so glad I have friends. Okay, the popular 1831 novel edition comes in at roughly calculating 75,380 words. Okay. 
You um, count them one by one is the thing. As you're I eating. do count them one by one. I got them. I got one of those little clickers that doormen use oh at the God. club. I'm Again, you away. could have just said seventy-one thousand. I could have said seventy-six thousand. Okay, great. Round up. There you yeah. go. Seventy-six thousand. Mm-hmm. Okay, it comes in at seventy-six thousand words, and now we come to the part of the show where. Alex Moore shuts the fuck up, and <laughs> no, Taylor don't. Brown takes us into the text. <laughs> Is it time for the text? Is it time for the text? Time for the text. Uh, hey guys, I think hey. it might be. So we should do another Frankenstein. That was pretty good. I like. There we that. go. There. Was. All right. There we go. <laughs> So I don't want to spend too much time on the intro stuff, but I do want to talk about the first sentence of the the preface, um, which says the event on which this fiction is founded, i.e., uh, you know, reanimating a dead corpse, has been supposed <laughs> by Doctor Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as of not of impossible occurrence. So they're saying huh. that this could happen, basically. Whoa. And yeah. when I say they, the Doctor Darwin, who's mentioned, is not Charles Darwin; it's his grandfather. Um, Erasmus Darwin. Ooh, Erasmus. Erasmus. Right. And he died Man. He died in 1802, so he didn't read Frankenstein or give his opinion on it specifically, so they're just kind of like citing him in the abstract. It's um, so lucky that Percy banged Shelley on her mother's grave before this book came out, because if he knew that Darwin thought it was real... I mean, how worried would you be banging on top that, of the mother's that grave? That a hand would just come up from the grave. I'm sure that played into it. I'm sure that I'm sure thoughts of trying to reanimate her dead mother in some way contributed completely. to this novel. Totally. Oh my god! Completely. Oh my god! Um, yeah. Wow. But what? What? So what? What they're referring to probably here is the idea of live matter emerging from dead matter, um, and they're referencing sort of Darwin's report on how a mixture of flour and water in his laboratory appeared to come to life by a process of spontaneous <laughs> generation. So, if so you, we're bacon. So we're bacon people. Really the, the scientific back, and really this is a science fiction novel. We talked about, sure. we talked about how HG Wang, our boy, uh, HG Wang was maybe the inventor, but people call Frankenstein the first science fiction novel, right? Yeah. It's a Gothic novel and it's a Gothic fiction and also, it is science fiction. That's exactly what it is. And uh, so really Mary Shelley is the mother of the, the true birth mother true of science fiction mother, yeah. because wow. H.G. Wells you know, obviously wasn't until almost a 1895, century later. right? Yeah. 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 Oh, mm-hmm. man. Later in the what century. a misogynistic world we live in. They didn't exactly. even think. And we and we covered that book first. A lot of it's it was just shorter. Well, it was just short. That's why we. Did it was just shorter, guys. It was it short, wasn't, easy. We had not, it had nothing to do with any sort of like. We were, it was we roughly to, around thirty-two oh thousand six hundred and eighty <laughs> words. So sensitive, so sensitive, Surrey. So sensitive. <laughs> sensitive, Surrey. So that that I just wanted to talk about that. That just they they were like, hey, just making sure you know that this isn't totally out of the realm of possibility. Uh, yeah. This can happen, but I don't think you know. Citing water and flowers, really. Yeah, I don't know that. And <laughs> like, upon further investigation, isn't water typically teeming with life, especially in eighteen? Look, science. Or whatever? So like, it was. The, they didn't really have like modern science yet. They, they ladled doing, it yeah. out of a river. It's not like he got it out of the Brita. And we're gonna get into this too. It's one of the courses that uh, Victor Frankenstein takes in, in university. Is this what's referred to as natural philosophy? You keep calling right. him. Victor Frankenstein, and I like that. But is it Frankenstein? I or don't Steen? know. I don't. Okay, know. is it Berenstain or Berenstein? 
Which one I think is it's it? F- it's Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Some people say Frankenstein. What am I saying? I don't even know what I'm you're saying. You're saying Frankenstein, I'm, which is hot. I'm saying Frankenstein? Yeah, it's almost a combo between Frankenstein and Frankenstein. Yeah, you were doing somewhere in the middle, but that's fine. I, I can Frank, get with yeah. it. Frankenstein, I mean, right? Br- Bjorn calls John Malkovich John Malkovic. So <laughs> Yeah, no, I don't know how to pronounce anything. That's why I was just asking. <laughs> is it Berenstein or Berenstain? That's what I need to know. Uh, Berenstain. Fuck. We're still in that reality. I swear to Christ, I'm a little bit older than you guys. I grew up, it's Berenstain. Like, That's what I, I thought I too, but they remember. say it's Berenstain, so we're just going to go with it. We don't need to talk about it anymore. It's done. We're going to listen to it's the experts. Done. Yeah. So, but but again, we're going to talk in, in, in the book, Victor Frankenstein Goes to University, and to, one of the courses he discovered is called Natural Philosophy, um, which is considered the precursor of natural science. So we're still in this phase of, you know, quote unquote, science that's very um, rudimentary in comparison right. to what we know now. They didn't know anything in comparison. And we still know nothing in comparison to universal knowledge, right, guys? Like, we don't know shit. Let's just be honest about our general ignorance as a species. Exactly. Right. Yeah. We're still new. And also, we just want to sound smart at parties, y'all. It's all, we want to sound smart at parties. We know that there's a limit to how smart we could possibly be. I, I just want to go to a party, too, that, that as well. <laughs> that would be <laughs> nice. That, that would be, be nice. really nice. Yeah, right a now, really yeah. dumb name in the pandemic. But hey, here we are. <laughs> We're committed. <laughs> so the, the let's the, get into the text. Let's jump into the text. But before we jump into it, I know we've talked about this at the beginning of each time before we jumped into the text. This is another frame narrative, but this shit is insane because this is like the inception of frame narratives. Ooh, yeah, it's before cool. every this is the earliest book we've read to date, too. Yes. Okay. And it's a narrative within a narrative within a narrative for the most part. It's like it's Canterbury like, Tales. Deep. It's deep shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's like we're getting levels. It's a house of leaves type situation. Yeah. Take us away, Taylor. So as discussed, the book opens with four letters. Uh, The first letter is from our neighbor, our narrator. His name's Robert Walton, and it's uh, addressed to his sister, Margaret Seville. He's in St. Petersburg in Russia, where he is giddy at the prospect of a journey he's about to embark on. Uh, he says, I shall satiate my ardent curiosity with the sight of a part of the world never before visited and may tread a land never before imprinted by the foot of man. So a lot of actual heart of darkness kind of type vibe. For sure. Which I think is just like a 19th century uh, thing where everyone, there's, there's a lot of knowledge to be had still, obviously, especially in hindsight. So everyone seems to be hungry to discover shit. Um, yeah. So I, he, I get the He also talks... He talks about the he wants to find the wondrous power that attracts the needle too. So this was obviously Whoa. well before that we knew a magnetic compass does not point to the geographic north pole instead to the earth's magnetic poles which are different than the earth's geographic poles. So like, you know, early 19th century had no fucking idea what we were talking about. You know, Captain Robert Walton just wants to go find why that needle's pointing up there. So he's stoked. Yeah, he's cool. he's heading he's heading to the North Pole. That's where he wants to go. That's where his that's the apple of his eye, the Arctic. Um, which again, a lot of there's a lot of icy, very rainy, cold imagery in this book, which again probably plays into the no summer summer that Mary Shelley was uh, experiencing as she was writing the novel. Totally. Um, and he goes on to elaborate that he's been planning on this journey for six years now. So there's a lot of anticipation built up for this North, Tro- North Pole journey. Um, and he's about to head to a town named Archangel, where he will hire a ship and set sail for the North Pole. 
In his second letter to his sister, it's a few months later, and it's the dead of winter, again, cold, and Robert has procured his ship and is in the process of hiring sailors. But Robert's kind of a sad boy, as he notes that as pumped as he is about his journey, he doesn't have any friends with him, which is another recurring theme in this book is everybody needs friends. You know? Yeah, friendship, Everybody companionship. Friends. Even together. if you're created out of nothing and you're eight feet tall and you you, you look like hell, you, you got Kinda a friend. Like Bjorn. Yeah, I was just about to say, like me? Yeah, yeah it looks exactly <laughs> like Bjorn. This is the, you um, are also, tall, too. You're also yeah. too tall. Yeah, and I am kind of created out of nothing. So, I mean, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Walton was also a sad sack. Also, he's 28 at this time. Uh, he did not bear his title for captain, until a poetry career floundered. He wanted to be a poet, Hmm. uh, didn't work out for him, and he thereafter inherited a goodly sum of cash from a cousin and proceeded to commit to his childhood dreams of exploration that his father had forbade as he was growing up. So, like, Captain Walton's here. He's almost 30. He's like, I can't fucking write a poem. No one likes me. I just need a friend. I want to go find why the needle's always pointing north. I love that. Why is the needle pointing north? That's a very lyrical thing. And do you think this Captain Walton's like based on Percy because he's like a, a poet that sucks. She's taking shots at him. <laughs> he is, a, and you can tell he's a poet that sucks because he makes this joke. But I shall kill no albatross, therefore do not be alarmed for my safety. Or if I should come back to you as worn and woeful as the ancient mariner, which is uh, an illusion. The rhyme of the ancient mariner. Yeah, so it's I just like what she's it's like a, that's just a, a really it's a really corny poet joke. It's a that's really a corny poet, poet joke. Really, it is a poet. It's got to be, right? You guys are way more educated than me. Please tell me how that's a poet well, joke. The, the well, the rhyme of the ancient mariner was a Coleridge poem that I think Mary Shelley actually used for a lot of inspiration for the, the even just the foundational levels of the novel. So, oh, okay. yeah, she snuck in this poet joke that, of course, maybe Taylor and I would only find halfway. Well, and Percy, we, too. He's out over there. He's just fuming. Old Bish is just being all bishy about it. Old Bishy. <laughs> Wait, what's Bishy fuming about again, Bjorn? Uh, the poet joke? <laughs> Who knows? The albatross? Anyway, what's know. clear to me is that all these writers just fucking love the sea, man. I don't get they it. Love yeah, it, they love it, They love the really sea. do. Yeah. I don't get it. I hate the sea. But you're a modern man. You're a modern man. You don't like the sea. Right. Why would you like the sea? You're a modern guy. You know, like well, there's no, there's nothing there for you. It meant travel. It was like airplane flight. It was like adventure before. Right? I don't get like, seasick, but my da- my dad gets really seasick. He even got se- he even got seasick at at Sea World. There's a ride that you know, like when you sit in those seats and they have the video screen and it like it oh, like it simulates no. you going like in the ocean. He got seasick from the simulator, like. Also, they have a simulator at SeaWorld when you're Just the idea that you said the sentence, my dad got seasick at SeaWorld. That's just the funniest <laughs> shit I've ever heard in my entire life, dude. That's like... Yeah, well, back back to Robert writing to his dear sister. Um, yeah, and I think to expound on your point, Taylor, uh, to expound on your point, Taylor, like all these poets loving the sea and shit... This will, I think, come in handy later on in the novel when we really see Captain Robert Walton uh, having his will tested. He was raised by his sister, again, of whom he's writing. Um, and he relays like his distaste for brute machismo and like versus his disposition for pseudo-romanticism that longs for adventure and, again, companionship. So he's a softy. Like, as much as he is a floundered poet and like wants to you know, be beneficial to the the human race. Mm-hmm. Um, he's also just kind of like, he's got a boner for, for love. It feels like every character in this novel has 
a big soft spot, actually. For sure. They're all, oh, you yeah. know, which totally. is accurate. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. And like, there's probably a little more attention to the, the softer side, the emotional side, since it was written by a woman versus like Conrad, who's just swathing around with exactly. blatant racism. Exactly. And- Thank God we got a female author in here, by the way, dude. The, uh, the first three novels were just fucking killing me. Yeah. Novellas, rather. So this was a good call. A lot yeah. of, uh, what'd you call it? Ma- ma- machismo? Machismo. Brute machismo. <laughs> is that a macchiato, but like <laughs> Is that a macchiato, manlier? but like manlier? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, the same joke. Oh my God. Lag got us. I was doing the same joke, same bit. I think it's machismo? Yes, I, it uh, okay, Malkovic, relax. <laughs> oh, he got, he got okay, you there. We want to be able to pronounce things as the new name of this podcast because clearly <laughs> don't none don't make of us me terse. I mean, I'll, I'll admit I've, I've willingly uh, mixed up archive and archive. <laughs> no, archive? <laughs> archive's no. awesome. I've said it, but like jokingly, but then I got confused. I'm like, which one was it again? And I got, I couldn't remember for a second. <laughs> is, it, is it data or data? Oh, I think either works. I don't yeah. think that one's up. Same with machismo and machismo. Okay. Is it mature or mature? We got to stop uh, doing this. We got to stop uh, yeah, doing this. Stop. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't yeah, even know yeah. where I'm at. Anymore. Hey, we're okay. talking about letters here. We're talking about sailing. Where we're, were we with the captain, Taylor? Oh, you were talking about his mach- the mach- you were on the machismo tip. Okay. I was on the machismo tip, but we were talking about him being in St. Petersburg. Oh, right. So like, we're on to the third yeah. letter. He writes a third letter in, in July. Who writes um, a third letter? This Robert. Character? Robert writes a third letter to his okay. sister in July. Okay. Um, the first, the and, first narrator. Right, yeah. and he's now at sea um, okay. with his crew, and okay. uh, he describes he may not see his homeland for years as the ship reaches further and further north. He's starting to realize how long of a journey this is going to be, um, but everything for the most part is running pretty smoothly. Not not a very eventful letter. A lot of the, Shelley spends a lot of time describing environment too, as, as you know. Many, many 19th century writers do, especially considering how tied in the environment is to the mood of the novel. Um, it goes along with uh, painting a really nice, dark, gothic picture for the reader. Cool. Um, yeah, because this so, is like the original goth shit, right? This, yeah. this is the OG goth. This is OG. OG. This is like, yeah, like the Cure style goth, right? Yeah. Like this is OG shit. Okay, cool. Yeah. Cocteau Twins. <laughs> yeah, Mary Shelley would be the cure. She's not the Smiths. She's like she is the. No, cure. I think Edgar Allan Poe would be the cure. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. Don't the I mean? Smiths I, predate the cure? Or uh, no, they, it's not yeah, about it's around the same time, roughly around the same time. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. So, in his final and fourth letter, uh, well, of which we will read now, it is now August, so just a month later, and the ship is now further north, and it's stuck. In um, amongst the ice up there, and it's we're at the Arctic Ocean by this point. Yeah, Ooh, yeah. Pre pre global warming, there was plenty of ice in August up there. Plenty. Uh, and he when they're when they're stuck out there, he notices a figure out in the distance being pulled by dogs on a sled. He says, "We perceived a low carriage fixed on a sledge and drawn by dogs. Pass on towards the north at the distance of half a mile. A being which had the shape of a man but apparently of gigantic stature sat in the sledge and guided the dogs." We watched the rapid progress of the traveler with our telescopes until he was lost among the distant inequalities of the ice. And um, so it's kind of just like weird to see someone that far up north when you're not anywhere near land. Just cr- and they're also stuck. They're, they're also just, like, stuck, stuck in this place. Well, yeah. that's a little strange. Uh, and then a couple hours later, the ice breaks apart and the ship becomes unmoored from its position. Uh, in the morning, Robert notices the men talking to someone on the ice below. Uh, it's a different person than the gigantor they saw the previous day. 
and he's in pretty bad shape, and he only has one dog with him. So Robert tells this stranger that they are headed further north still, and the stranger agrees to come on board. And because you know, what other what other choice does he have at this point? He's yeah, he's already he's, ate one of his dogs apparently. It's unclear if he had any more than one dog to start with or what happened mm. to them, but maybe sure. he did. I mean, who knows? It's yeah, you're, You got to do what you got to do up there. Yeah. Um, don't... Oh, shit. My dog heard that. Um, oh. Yeah, my dog heard it, too. Oh, shit. She's looking at me. <laughs> yeah, they're both looking at you. She just like, looked at me. Oh, my God. Sorry, Boogie. I would never eat that you. butcher knife. I would never <laughs> so, eat you. I love you so much. So this stranger that's come on board, Robert uh, describes him thusly. Quote, I never saw a more interesting creature. His eyes have generally an expression of wildness and even madness. But there are moments when, if anyone performs an act of kindness towards him or does any most trifling service, his whole countenance is lighted up, as it were, with a beam of benevolence and sweetness that I never saw equaled. But he is generally melancholy and despairing, and sometimes he gnashes his teeth, as if impatient of the weight of woes that oppresses him. And this is every character in the book they are both very nice and sweet and depressed yeah 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 there, there's a duality with you're right dude almost every character and there's a lot and of think, attention to, paid on characters emotional states in this novel more so than typically any other thing i've read um from the time period at least definitely not from sure. male authors well, there's quite a bit of discourse to thinking that this whole novel is basically just an example of Freud's the id, ego, and the superego. So it could be called Freudenstein in that sense. Nice. Ooh, uh, yeah, nice. thank you. Thank nice. you. Coin that term. You heard it here first. On we want to sound smarter party. Smarterparties.com, baby. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like this whole back and forth with the ego being the mediator between the super ego and the id. And we'll get into that a little bit later okay, as the story progresses. Because I'm really dumb. That's how dumb I am. Like, I'm cursorily familiar with ego, id, and super ego, but can we get like a tiny recap? Can you, can you, can you crystallize okay. it for us? Well, I mean, I want to I want to get into it when we learn a little bit more about the characters. Well, that's what I mean, but only... I feel like what's an ego real quick? Like Okay, the, so the superego is your moral conscience. Got it. Uh the ego is the realism that mediates um between the desires of the id and the superego. Got it. And the id is the primitive and instinctual part of the mind that contains sexual and aggressive drives okay. and hidden memories. Got it. So so we'll get into more of that. But so the it, id like does what it wants. It's looking for it's for it's very sexual sec pleasure zone. The, it fucks on right. mom's grave. It doesn't give a shit. Right, exactly. And then superego super is, is like trying is like to keep that in check. Well, yeah, it's like what's good and proper and socially desirable, right, right. and then the ego mediates the two. It's like your wise really, mind. Okay. Right. I brought that up because Taylor's so right. Like, almost every fucking character in this novel is completely conflicted. As they should. I mean, given and given the general uh, arc of the story and the theme and the mood of the novel, it, it is as it should be. And so it's just, it's it's really fun actually reading her characters because they take on a uh, uh, not just vivid uh, uh, descriptions physically, but also you just get a really overall three-dimensional uh, view of everyone. And everyone has a very distinct identity in this book. It's very, uh, very fleshed out in terms of who everyone is. Cool. Yeah, she really knew how to write people. 
Exactly. Um, cool. And I think that, that was just a long, stems. convoluted way of saying she's good with characters. <laughs> she's really great with characters, and that probably be, that's because she had so many actual characters in For her real. life, like a right. feminist mom and anarchist dad, right. banging on her mom's grave. She had this stepsister who's banging her lover, and just so much banging. There's just a lot of banging. So yeah. she knew she knew the complications and the complexities of human beings in the early 19th century. She's uh, a people she person. Like, yeah, she, she's definitely a people person. I she's would good say with people. All of them in the in the idea of free love right. were people, people. Cool. You know? So uh, Robert has this strange man on board his ship now, and after he has regained a little bit of strength, he recovers a little bit. Uh, the crew has a bunch of questions for him, namely, what's he doing so far up on a north, so far up north <laughs> yeah, on the dock? Yeah, number one. What are <laughs> number you doing one? In the what North are you doing here? And his answer <laughs> was very simple. It was, quote, to seek one who fled from me, which presumably would be the huge figure they first saw being pulled by mm-hmm. a bevy of dogs. I mean, like, it's, we, we know who we're talking about at this point. We got Frankenstein on board the ship. He's looking for his monster. Right. And that's Victor Frankenstein looking for Lil Frankie Jr. That's got Victor it. Frankenstein looking for Lil Frankie Jr. Frankie He's a- got it. Okay. <laughs> but Lil Frankie Jr. has all the dogs? He's got a bunch of dogs. We don't know anything else other than that they're there. You know, we're still oh, nothing about them. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for just gleaning from what everyone already knows about Frankenstein and his monster, we can just go ahead outright and spoiler alert: say that's who it is. Yeah, spoiler alert. Uh, got it. <laughs> so yeah, Victor's on board, and that's when the crew tells him that they saw another man being pulled by dogs on the sled the day before they found him. And that's when uh, Victor Frankenstein immediately perks up and asks a bunch of questions yeah, of about, course. like, well, like, what did you see? Like, <laughs> yeah. where, where was he going? And like, and he actually even says, where was this demon headed? Or how should we? How do you want to pronounce this? Let's just say demon. Let's just say demon. Because if we keep if we keep saying Damon, I'm just gonna go Matt. Matt. I'm just gonna keep Damon. saying Matt. <laughs> yeah. So put some reverb on that. At this point, Robert realizes that he and Victor have grown to be. Pretty good friends ever since he came up. Yeah, As Robert Walton wanted. As He's he wanted this whole really time. wanted a friend. Yeah. Story so, complete. Um, kind of works out. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, so like, he's got a butt after all. Uh, in fact, he notes that his affection for this man increases every day. Um, yeah. Did we just become best friends? That's what happens. That's just how it is. Friendship. Yeah. Sunny mm-hmm. times there on board the, uh, the ice ship. They start playing music yeah. together, and, and they cut each other's toenails. Like, and he even and says, quote, He is so gentle, yet so wise. His mind is so cultivated, and when he speaks, although his words are culled with the choicest art, yet they flow with rapidity and unparalleled eloquence. Like, these guys are pros. Like, they really like yeah. each other. They're homies. They're really digging rapidity each other. Rapidity is yeah. such a good word, and I don't know what it means. Like, wouldn't it be nice? What's going on in the background? It's like, yeah. yeah the, or the, the montage from uh, Step Brothers. So... At this point, Robert's telling Victor Frankenstein, you know, what drives him, which is that pursuit of knowledge and how even uh, a man's death would be a small price to pay, would be a small price to pay for the acquirement of that knowledge. And Victor Frankenstein says to that unhappy man, do you share my madness? Have you drunk also of the intoxicating draft? Hear me, let me reveal my tale and you will dash the cup from your lips. So really, this sets up now as a cautionary tale for the thirst for knowledge, which ties into a lot of actual classic literature that Shelley was inspired by, including Paradise Lost, which is famously the tale of Adam and Eve and the tree right. of knowledge. So, um, yeah, I think it sets up nicely to to tell that kind of story. I feel like this whole framing of it makes a lot of sense, too, in comparison to some other books we've read where it's just kind of 
more of a storytelling device. Right. Yeah, th- this this is what we were talking about earlier. It's the frame within the frame within a frame. And this shifts into the second frame, which is Victor relaying his story to Captain Robert Walton, of which Robert, the captain is actually documenting and sending home in letters to his sister as well. Mm-hmm. So, so chapter one, Frankenstein, Frankenstein begins his story by heaping praise on his ancestors, in particular his dad who apparently was quite the respectable fellow. Uh, one of his father's best friends was a merchant named Beaufort, who had fallen from a state of rank and magnificence into poverty and oblivion. So Frankie's dad decides he wants to help him out. However, Beaufort had taken a lot of care into concealing where he was, so it took, took Frankenstein's dad about 10 months to find out where he was in the city of Lucerne. However, upon finding his house, he discovered his dear old friend to be dead, having succumbed to some sickness despite the vigilant care of his daughter, Caroline. The result of this was two years later, Frankie's dad ended up marrying the much younger Caroline, and the new couple moved to Italy. So that's how Frankie and his mom came to find love. But I think we should call him Frankenstein, because like, otherwise, little Frankie's going to get confused. Or we can call him Victor. Victor. Or, Victor. You know. Let's call him Victor. Victor. Okay. Yeah, we'll call him Victor. You know what? I think here in my notes, I'll just start calling him Frankie. Uh, sure. But Frankie Jr. is going to get confusing to me. You're right. Well, that, that... Yeah, little Frankie Jr. is not to be confused with Victor right. Frankie. Victor yeah, but... is our main Victor. character, and okay. little Frankie Jr. is the monster or the got it. <laughs> I love the or the demon yeah. or the Matt uh, or the dude. demon or, or the, the Matt Damon got it or the uh, the mashup of a person okay cool yeah a, a human medley a human medley <laughs> <laughs> so Victor was soon born to Caroline and his dad who was named Alphonse they don't, we don't find that out till later so I'm just gonna clarify that now Alphonse is Victor's dad that's um, Mr. Fonz to you. It's Mr. Fonz. So uh, he's born, and his, par- his parents spent much of their time actually helping out poor people. Uh, so upstanding folk, these guys, these Frankenstein. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So one family that Caroline found had five kids, but one appeared to be um, like a lot more Aryan than the other four. She had blonde hair, blue eyes, that whole that whole shebang. You probably know a lot about that, Bjorn. Anyway. Very the peasant familiar. woman explained that this girl Elizabeth, yeah, this 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 blonde hair, blue eyed girl was named Elizabeth, and she was not the child of this peasant woman, but she was the daughter of a Milanese nobleman who was orphaned after her father's property was confiscated. So Caroline, who always wanted a daughter, decides to take Elizabeth into her care, and so Elizabeth is therein kind of the de facto sister of Victor, but they kind of call each other as cousins. And I think that's yeah, because in the weird. original text, um, originally she was actually his his cousin. Um, but the relationship was changed by this version of the novel. Oh, really? In yeah. the 1831 version? Mm-hmm. Well, also, it, <laughs> to note on that too, it's kind of confusing in the story because although they're not blood-related, they, they do refer to one another, Elizabeth and Victor, that is, of... Again, as siblings and as cousins, um, but it's not incestuous at all if no. they're ever to get no. down. Get your minds out of the gutter. Sorry. You and and the proverbial listener. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's chapter one. Chapter one's all backstory about the parents, so we can cut wow. that down that's as a, need be. <laughs> right out of the gate, just coming out with that exciting text, Mary Shelley. Wow. Well, in also in chapter one, in Shelley's description of, of Victor's father, the senior Frankenstein, 
And furthermore, the inner workings of the whole family unit throughout the course of the novel, but especially here in the beginning, it kind of casts a reflectively sad light on Mary Shelley writing what she had always dreamed of, and that was a father who'd pay attention to her and bestow upon her the kind of love that she didn't receive from her own absentee father. Uh. So, yeah, we get a lot of we get a lot of that in the beginning. We get this loving uh, Alphonse Frankenstein, who's you know really taking care of his children, yeah. which Real Mary mensch. Shelley didn't. Yeah, re- helping yeah. out the poor. Great, great, great cup. I mean, like again, but Mary Killer Shelley dude. and like upstanding, just probably similar to. Mary's parents, uh, you know, admirable people doing admirable acts. For sure. Um, so chapter two starts, and uh, basically it starts out with Victor talking about Elizabeth being his responsibility to care for and love, uh, and the two got along like gangbusters growing up in their little Swiss cottage, not being that far apart in age either. Um, as Victor says, quote, Harmony was the soul of our companionship, and the diversity and contrast that subsisted in our characters drew us nearer together. Elizabeth was of a calmer and more concentrated disposition, but with all my ardor, I was capable of a more intense application and was deeply smitten with the thirst for knowledge. So again, we're getting this return to this thirst for knowledge theme. Very prevalent, very prevalent during the century overall. Very prevalent. Uh, so once Victor turned seven, his parents had another son uh, named Ernest, and the family settled down in Geneva. But they mostly stayed at their swaggy lake house on the Bell Rive. So they're doing pretty well for themselves at this point. Um, and that's when Victor starts describing a another boy at his school who was his best friend. His name's Henry Clerval. And he was like one of those all-star kids who's good at fucking like everything. And they're like super handsome, yeah. super witty. Yeah, yeah kind of like, like you guys. Like the most yeah. popular kid in school, basically. Yeah. You uh, that wasn't me. I don't know. That's the Bjorn about. of that school. That is the Bjorn of yeah, the school. Yeah, maybe it was the Bjorn of the school. Bjorn of the school. Cool. Uh Victor basically had a super awesome childhood, and he isn't shy about admitting it. He says, No human could have pr- passed a happier childhood than myself. So yeah. Super loving family. They all had dinner together. They probably played Monopoly, whatever the early 19th century edition of Monopoly was. Yeah. And um, so, and he didn't really pursue like typical kid stuff. He was mostly no. driven by, you know, uncovering the secrets of the universe. That's, that was his drive, as he's touched on already. It's um, a pretty lofty drive there. As, as a guy who would eventually cobble together body parts in order to make a new person, <laughs> that would, that, would yeah. that mostly like would be your origin story. Like, I want to know the secrets of the universe. Um, right. So, you know, you're not going to try to reanimate a Rubik's Cube dead guy without being a little curious. Um, <laughs> so when Victor turned 13, he found a book by Cornelius Agrippa. Um, and Al, did you, did you look into Cornelius Agrippa? Hold on. I know I who it? Cornelius is. Hold on. I do know who that is. Oh. He hosted Soul Train. There it is. Yes, he's talking about the host of Soul Train. Uh, yeah, Cornelius, yeah. right? I think the only information you know about no? Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa von Nadensheim is a whole grip of wrong information. You I mean, it depends I who you ask. Pun intended. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he finds this book by Cornelius Agrippa, and Victor's father, Alphonse, just trashes the guy and called it bunk science. Um, but Victor is pretty pumped on it and keeps reading it anyway. Um, and Al, did you look into Cornelius Agrippa and did you, f- only, did you look into only who he was? So- 
only at such a superficial level. I right. know that he was alive from 1486 to 1535, and he was a philosopher who claimed that the study of magic was the best means to know God and nature. Ooh, yeah, so cool. you're getting at, so he's considered one of the most influential occultists of the early modern period, and his oh, book on the occult, yeah. Three Books of Occult Philosophy, was published in 1533, but was condemned as heretical by the Inquisitor of Cologne. So, what's heretical this is, mean? <clears throat> your heresy, your oh. uh, it's it's, it's uh, an abomination to to Christ. Oh, cool! So, <laughs> goth, goth, it's so goth. Cure. So this time period, but before the before you know the the Renaissance, there was something called the uh, occult Renaissance. Really? And he was yeah, he was a leading mind. And this is during this you know six, early sixteenth century period when he was alive in the early. Early 1500s, and um, and another word for occult Renaissance is Renaissance magic, and that explored the varieties of ceremonial magic, which includes scapulomancy, which is a form of divination using an animal's scapula. Uh, oh, cool! In which the scap the scapula would would be broken, and based on how it was broken, you could use it to read the future. Whoa! And then oh. there's and then there's chiromancy, which is a form of divination based on reading palms and based on intuitions and symbolisms, uh, with some symbols tying into astrology. And that, I think that's something we see a lot in today, especially in... What's your sign? Exactly. Uh, and then you have pyromancy, which is the art of divination, Fire. which could... <laughs> Fire! Consisted of signs and patterns from flames. Cool. Uh, then there's aeromancy which is divination consisted in tossing sand, dirt, or seeds into the air, air and studying and interpreting the patterns of how the dust cloud settles or how the seeds settle. Okay. There's hydromancy, same thing. Water. 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 You see, yeah. You look in. <laughs> What's you see necromancy? Just let me get to it. Oh, my bad. That's the only one I know. I'm super excited. I've heard There's a word that geomancy, I know. There's geomancy, okay. which That's was one like of the more popular forms of magic that people practiced during the Renaissance period. Earth. Yeah, you would cast sandstone or dirt in the ground and read the shapes. <laughs> <laughs> and then finally, I, w- I, was saving, I was saving the best for last. Necromancy. Oh, Bjorn's favorite. Yeah, necromancy, which is demonic magic and a black art, which deals with such dark phenomena. Phenomena. Yeah. Phenomena as raising Phenomena. the dead, and Fuck that yeah. is really the Mancy of all the Mancies that probably it's the best Mancy. Little Victor, not not to be confused with Little Frankie Jr. Little Frankie Jr. Right. <laughs> little childhood Victor. Uh, this is this is where he probably was really curious. Was necromancy all things considered? Cool, and from a guy named Cornelius. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, due to what is usually viewed as violation of the dead or historically communication with demons, uh, necromancy is condemned by the Christian faith. Uh, Hydromancy can be used alongside necromancy, using children five to seven years old for their spiritual purity to Mm. repeat their master's incantation over human blood or bones. Oh, wow. So you got to get the kids involved. Also for their adrenal glands, you know? Yeah. The result of this... Yeah, the... the, yeah, that's that's modern. That's a more modern. Oh my type. bad. That's a yeah, pizza the adrenochrome. Yeah, yeah, adrenochrome. So the yeah pizza Q and all that stuff. The yeah. product was <laughs> which what you got was was three things, right? You got either knowledge of the dead or demons, okay. depending on what you're dealing with, uh, manipulating the will of another person or people, mm. uh, or illusions, illusions mm. such as transforming a person into animals. Oh, okay. Yeah, and pr- oh. practitioners in the late Middle Ages usually belong to the educated elite. 
as the contents of most grimoire were written in Latin. Demonic magic was usually performed in groups surrounding a spiritual leader in possession of necromantic books. Oh, so man. this is kind of yeah, and while some That's scholars so eyes wide shut right now, I love that shit. There, except I mean, yeah, I sure. Yes, which part? Yeah. <laughs> the big group and the magic. Oh. You know, he's oh. just thinking about orgies. Yeah, he's thinking. There's no sex he, involved in the necromancy, as far yeah. as I've read. Maybe there he's is stuck, in some cultures. I don't know. It's hard to say. He's stuck on that Kubrick Mancy. Oh yeah, I, I was Kubrick Mancy. That's a specific yeah. Mancy. Very specific. <laughs> yeah. So, um, writer John Meebane in. Renaissance magic and return of the golden age writes considerable space is devoted to examples of evil sorcery and de occulta philosophia, which is Agrippa's work. And one might easily come away from the treatise with the impression that Agrippa found witchcraft as intriguing as benevolent magic. So this is who little Victor Frankenstein is reading and being inspired by and driven by, um, in his at the age of years. 13. At, at the, the age, age of 13. 13. Yeah. So, He's really getting into it. This He's is not, totally no, no the inception of frame narratives because there's like narratives inside of narratives and little baby Victor is just reading other people's books that are actually real that exist in the world. I mean, that's crazy. Well, it, it what it's it's great because every character has very clear motive in this book because yeah, you get right. you get it from yeah. who their parents are even. So it's, oh, okay. it's I mean, like that's why he's he's when he's explaining how he got to the North Pole to this man on a ship, he's like, "Let me start with how my parents met." <laughs> you know, so he's like, again, it's like Mary Shelley has like, I have this whole world in my head, and I just want to get it all on paper. Well, so this this spawns somewhat of a Cornelius Agrippa obsession. Fuck so yeah. Victor decides to get all of his books after this, and also the works of some other minds from the period named Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. I gotta say, they had some solid names rocking back then. Strong yeah, Latin they, vibes. Strong like. names. So strong, they could be in the strongman competition, you know, like uh, Va- Ma- Magnuson von Magnuson. Yeah. Have you guys ever watched the strongman competition? No. Oh, wait, yes. When I was yeah. a yeah. You know, like the ESPN str- during the day when I was a child. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they had Va- Magnuson von Magnuson. Right. You know, they, these guys All sound the like, say the names again, they sound like strongman names. Paracelsus and Albertus Magnus. There you go. There's also another one, and I think this might be Paracelsus's full name, but Theophrastus Bombastus Hohenheim. <laughs> yeah, you made that's that what up. I'm saying. No, Bombastus is a real name. Dude, he is And I think that's where Shaggy got his yeah, inspiration for Mr. Bombastus. Mr. Bombastus. <laughs> See what it's about. It's about Maybe. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of I'm sure... Uh, roots here with and ties into voodoo stuff too so definitely cool know. my mom's super into voodoo really yeah can we get her on the pod i mean maybe who's into voodoo? definitely my mom well she grew up in louisiana so they oh. the, they're they very much believe and she never told you about nicholas cage's uh you know uh, uh grave i don't she never, know if she, she never talked that about part. that all no, right well knew. you say she grew up in new orleans but you know Man, that 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 trying to stretch the 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 trying to stretch that joke to, out to, to Shaggy to wow. <laughs> <laughs> all these dudes, all these dudes that Taylor's talking about, they're all Swiss alchemists and physicians and revered philosophers and natural scientists. Well, rev- not so revered. Really anymore? Well, maybe, yeah, maybe not revered, yeah, for the time. <laughs> like that, like Victor's dad's trashing this dude. He's like, "This is 
This is like, I mean, I'm not going to analogize. It's just, it's bunk science. It's like when you get those third, you know, it's like those, uh, those untrustworthy sources on the internet. You mean the internet? You mean flat earthers? Like we were talking about earlier. This is kind of a flat earth thing. It's like if little Victor was like, Hey dad, the, the, it's not a globe. And you know, (laughs) and old, old Alfonso Frankenstein was like, you are a dumb ass little kid. Could you imagine the monster that Victor would have created if his only source of information was like Twitter? Or something like that, you know? <laughs> he would end up like that Microsoft Twitter bot that immediately became a Nazi pedophile. Do you remember that? No. Can you no. can you give us that can you give us that backstory? So I don't remember. I wanna that at all. say in about 2012, 2013, Microsoft had an AI only Twitter bot that was created only from it's it's um what do you call it? The source material for AI. It's like um um God damn it, I can't even speak. An algorithm? Are you talking about algorithms? No, just like where they pull all the source material from. Like, a, Anyways, Microsoft created a Twitter bot that pulled all of its information from Twitter. And basically, within 24 hours of creating it, it became a Nazi pedophile. Like it had its <laughs> oh own... God. It had its own autonomous ability to tweet, and it started tweeting Nazi pedophilia stuff. So they had to take it down. <laughs> oh my god! Oh yeah, I vaguely remember that. Yeah, you vaguely remember uh, that. Yeah, it was the crazy. time we live in. Yeah, uh, because you can't only be a pedophile anymore. You have to be a fucking Nazi too. That's great. Right. That's great. Exactly. Yeah. So he Victor gets super into uh, Cornelius Agrippa and these occultists, um, and he he even you know, draws a comparison with it to his formal education. He says, it may appear strange that such should arise in the 18th century, but while I I followed the routine of education in the schools of Geneva, I was to a great degree self-taught with with regard to my favorite studies. Wealth was an inferior object, but what glory would attend the discovery if I could banish disease from the human frame and render man invulnerable to any but a violent death? So he's got big aspirations here. Um, Yeah, even at a young age, he knows that he is going to be... uh, (laughs) <laughs> he's going to be baking people to life. Yeah, a little crazy, <laughs> a little crazy, but that's Victor for you. Um, so he explains that, quote, the raising of ghosts or devils was a promise liberally accorded to by, accorded by my favorite authors, the fulfillment of which I most eagerly sought. And if my incantations were always unsuccessful, I attributed the failure rather to my own inexperience and mistake than to a want of skill or fidelity in my instructors. So he's he's just saying that, He's he thinks it's he's the only reason he can't do what he, it says in the books is because he's not experienced enough and turns out he's right. Um, at fifteen, Victor describes being at their lake house during a lightning storm, which he describes as his introduction to electricity. Mm. Uh, after witnessing a lightning bolt burst apart a tree into flames, a natural philosopher who was also with him at the time, and again, natural philosophy is this kind of precursor to modern science. Um, he starts getting into electricity and galvanism, which stood in stark contrast with Victor's studies on the occult and magic. Um, and he sits there and he wonders, all that had so long engaged my attention suddenly grew despicable, he says, and henceforth started focusing more and more on math and science. He explains that moment as a guardian angel trying to dissuade him from these dark arts. Right. A last ditch attempt. Yeah. yeah. And, and I he, think this is also, as we were talking about earlier, Taylor, this is where that popular misconception, or maybe not a misconception, although it's vague uh, in the novel, surrounding the little Frankie Jr.'s animation with electricity. 
um, which is inconsistent with the work overall, even though we don't really know to like a fine point. And this was first obscured as the result of James Whale's 1931 film adaptation of the story and derivatives of other retellings thereafter. So yeah. in 1931, that was the first instance of Frankenstein, little Frankie Jr., being reanimated. And what did it look uh, like in that movie? It looked like him on a stretcher. Like right, we usually classic. see it. Like the classic him on a stretcher, you know, some shit hooked up to his dome during a thunderstorm where like, you know, they, they use an antenna yeah. rod. Yeah, I get same. it though. I get it. It's visual. How else are you going to yeah. like, I mean, and also in the text it's, I mean, we'll get to it, but it's unclear what the mechanism is that the word spark is used. So that's all I'll say. That's true. Yeah. So we get into chapter three now, and Victor is 17 years old, and he's getting ready to go to university at Ingolstadt in Germany when his you know, proverbial sister, Elizabeth, comes down with scarlet fever, and she's mm. got it pretty bad. So mm. no one can really tend to her because it's very infectious. So mm. their mother, Caroline, was kept away from tending to her until it got to the point where it looked like she was going to die. So at that point, Caroline goes in and actually nurses her back to, back to health. But Caroline soon too grew ill, so mm. not lo- not long after that, she she died. This fatal occurrence brings into play Victor's first recounting of what grief does to the survived in the bargaining stages, too. Right, because he was a pretty happy kid up until this. Dude, he was so stoked. He, he was, was pumped, learning about he was, necromancy. Yeah. Mm. He was like kind of loving his sister cousin, mm-hmm. um, and it foreshadows his disdain for the finality of death, which obviously leads him to eventually kind of create life yeah so after some weeks of mourning and grieving victor's finally ready to head off to university uh his friend henry wants to go along with him and stayed with the frankensteins the night before victor's departure but henry's narrow-minded dad nicks their idea which bummed henry out because his dad wanted him just be grow up and be like a boring ass merchant but henry doesn't want i don't want your laugh but so that's kind of was that was that a Varsity Blues reference? It's a Varsity yeah, Blues what was reference. That? Yeah. Wow, was that dude, that was James Blue? Vanderbeek. Wow. I don't want your laugh. Yeah, that was that's really Henry. Good. Henry is, J- you know, Henry wow. is James Vanderbeek's character. Okay, he's, yeah, the, he he's the quarterback. Yeah. Uh, God, why do I do this for everything? I have to. I just need a movie analogy for everything. <laughs> he's handsome. He's got a five head. You know, it's that it's that Vanderbeek thing. So they all bid the forever knowledge craving Victor adieu the next morning. Adieu, I bid you adieu, adieu good sir. I bid you adieu. And upon arriving to school, Victor meets uh, his one of his professors, uh, Krempe. I think I'm going to call mm. him Krempe. Do you say Krempe or Krempe? I would say Krempe. I would just say Krempe. Krempe is so, Krempe is, Krempe I feel like it's so giving him too much pizzazz, actually. It's a Krempe. Yeah, let's call him Krempe, because as he's described, Kremp. he's, quote, a little squat man with a gr- gruff voice, so he's Krempe. Krempe. He's Krempe. Cramp. Uh, and Cramp is the professor of natural philosophy, which we've discussed, uh, which it's the, uh, again, the precursor to modern science or natural science, if you will. And when Victor tells Cramp about his foray into the dark arts, Cramp is not too pleased and says, quote, every minute, every instant that you have wasted on those books is utterly and entirely lost. You have burdened your memory with exploded systems and useless names. Good God, in what desert land have you lived where no one was kind enough to inform you that these fancies which you have so greedily imbibed are a thousand years old and as musty as they are ancient? I little expected in this enlightened and scientific age to find a disciple of 
Albertus Magnus and Paracelsus. My dear sir, you must begin your studies entirely anew. Bro. So, bro. Don't doesn't cramp, think too, bro. Don't, bro. Don't cramp my style. Don't cramp my style. Oh shit! That's so good. What a good, so pun. good. Yeah. barbecue good cramp and um, broiled cramp, bro, and sautéed cramp, <laughs> bro, coconut cramp. Don't cramp my style. <laughs> Jesus, that's all he said. That's that's the ultimate comeback. Actually, you should do it in a James Vanderbeek voice. Can you do it in a James Vanderbeek voice, Tabor? I don't want your cramp. <laughs> <laughs> So Cramp hides over. He he gives Victor a bunch of a list of books on natural philosophy. You know this prescription, like it's a prescription to rid him of this disease of the occult, and explains that on alternating days he'll be attending class with Professor Waldman, who teaches chemistry. And Victor isn't. He's not so stoked as quote. He was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth. Like he's getting a university. He's like this is boring i don't want fucking teaching me to think inside the box when my entire life i've just been reading about all these mancies and mancy reagan and like all these other mancies that we talked about yeah so he's not too sit in mancy he's he's bummed but then he meets waldman and he's a way bigger fan of this guy yeah waldman rules but also kind of seals his fate yeah he's like the cool professor cool yeah he's Um, uncle prof and he actually is a little more open-minded to these uh, occultists. He says, quote, The modern masters promise very little. They know that metals cannot be transmuted and the elixir of life is a chimera. But these philosophers whose hands seem only made to dabble in dirt and their eyes to pour over the microscopic or crucible have indeed performed miracles. They penetrate into the recesses of nature and show how she works in her hiding places. They ascend into the heavens. They have discovered how the blood circulates in the nature of the air we breathe. They have required new and almost unlimited powers. They can command the thunders of the heaven, mimic the earthquake, and even mock the invisible world with its own shadows. So he's he's a little more open to the building blocks, if you will, of, of thought that these um, people from the occult renaissance, I guess, laid out for... Uh, the future of science and knowledge. So Victor calls these words the words of fate, and he goes on. One by one, the various keys were touched which formed the mechanism of my being. So a pretty formative moment there for Victor, to say the least. Yeah, so like, Cramp might have been that last effort along with that lightning strike on the tree that kind of dispelled him of all those magical natures. Cramp is that, like, another roadblock that's like, no, Victor, don't do this! Um, And then Waldman just comes in and shatters that. He's like, fuck it, kid. Go ahead and collect body parts and follow like, your you know, heart. Make, yeah, follow your heart, bro. <laughs> <laughs> follow your heart by grabbing another heart and slamming it into these body parts and and reanimating it. Right. Uh, Victor responds that because of Waldman, he no longer holds a bias against modern chemists. And Waden responds that Victor must study all branches of science in order to stand a single branch of it. Uh, and after this meeting, Victor narrates. Thus ended a day memorable to me. It decided my future destiny. Nice. Yeah, but it's it's so important to note that because Surely. at this point, it, correct me if I'm wrong, Taylor, but Victor really starts excelling uh, in Ingolstadt, which oh, is yeah. where he's at university. Yeah. And after two years of grindstone ethic, high esteem was awarded to him at the university for the improvement of some chemical instruments. Yeah, he started doing some groundbreaking stuff, actually. Yeah, he's making a name for himself, and especially with being under the wing of Waldman, Waldman's wing, if we will. um, It uh, it really encourages him to, again, go after his heart. So he starts, (laughs) starts really climbing 
the social ladder yeah. and the professional ladder at Ingolstadt, which is where he's enrolled. Um, and this this kind of catapults him into he, more of what we're going to get into right yeah, now. Yeah, he, he gets to the point where university is not really doing much for him at this point. He's kind of outgrown it. Uh, when something happens that keeps him there a bit longer, uh, Victor explains, quote, One of the phenomena which had peculiarly attracted my attention was the structure of the human frame and indeed any animal endued with life. Whence, I often asked myself, did the principle of life proceed? So in order to gain knowledge of life, Victor knows he must first study death and decay. So he spends a lot of time examining dead bodies, studying their decay, studying even how worms really like to eat the brains and the eyeballs. When he makes Yum. a discovery Bro, and makes the so bold, goth. yeah, he makes and he makes the bold claim that quote, I became myself capable of bestowing animation upon lifeless matter. Whoa. Here, Victor breaks from the narrative to tell Robert on the ship that he won't tell him what his quote secret of reanimation is specifically considering how dangerous the knowledge is which is why we don't know if it was an actual lightning bolt or electricity it plays in you know it's actually a really smart writing trick here where you don't know how to explain something specifically because it's impossible right so So you're like secret it needs to be a secret and you can be vague about it Right. We should tell more secrets on this podcast, actually, whenever we don't know how to explain something. Spoiler alert. I actually know what it is. You guys want to know what, what it is? What do you mean? What the, what the secret was. What? Oh, yeah. Give it to us. Paprika. You put a little bit of that. <laughs> what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You use it for deviled eggs and for reanimating people. Paprika. Paprika? I Paprika. just met her, Bjorn. <laughs> nice. Thanks. It's You're the spice. For that one. It's the <laughs> melange. I just mean it's the melange of it's the melange of life. Literally, a little bit of paprika goes a long way. That's a little really tip does. from you Miracle know, Bjorn. I, I, that's a hot tip from a hot giant tip. Swede. Uh, yeah. After this moment, Victor resolves himself to essentially build a gigantic eight foot tall dead person cobbled mm. together from body parts that take him months to collect. Is this my origin story? Yeah, also known as Bjorn. This is <laughs> this is exactly who you are. Origin story for Bjorn. That should be your Tinder bio, what Taylor just said. (laughs) But why so giant, considering that eight feet tall is, I think it's happened once in history, and it's just ungodly, and... Like, I don't know what you're thinking, actually. What do you think when you reanimate an eight-foot person? How's every, how do you think everyone's going to react? Right. What yeah, were exactly. you thinking? Yeah. How did you think this was a you good You got to go with the Edward Scissorhands thing. Like, Johnny Depp was beautiful. You know, he was just, even though he was a he was a monster with his hands, he was so beautiful. Well, you know? he like, thought oh, he was making so a beautiful... He, with, ironically, the according to him, the the creature looked more beautiful dead than alive. It was when, oh, he, yeah. it's when, he, gained li- it's when he gains life that it becomes... Uh, Hold on. In horrific. Victor's defense, do and this is why he made him so big. And Taylor, I know you know this, but yeah. due to the complexity, yeah, due to the complexity and the minutia of the human physique, Victor resolves to enlarge in the scale of his creation to avoid to afford himself more operating prowess and room for error. That's why Frankenstein. Are is you so saying because fu- I mean, I'm that's big? Why, that I'm like I'm like. I'm easier to build. Like God had an easier time building me. I'm not special. Like that. It was just, you're, he, you're, he took you're a shortcut. only special because he wanted to make the perfect specimen oh. and he needed a little bit more room for error, which oh, Bjorn, you man. have plenty of, you I have do plenty, have plenty of, of room you, for you have error. plenty of programmer errors, dude. Oh, the mean. simulation's heating up, and I'm just a, <laughs> and I'm just a fragment. I'm, I'm just a, I'm just an artifact of the simulation. Bummer. Yeah. So, Big giant dead guy. I have a feeling I'm going to get my feelings hurt a lot in this Frankenstein now that we've been talking about it. 
You know why? Just because you resemble a lot of the physique of, yeah. of little Frankie Jr. Of little Frankie Jr. I feel like really, uh, you know, like a, a a kindred spirit in this Frankenstein. You know, I too am a monster. Well, Taylor Brown can be Victor Frankenstein, and okay. I'll be Elizabeth Frankenstein. Okay, cool. Yeah. yeah. So. Victor's, he's pretty pumped about the whole pro. He's excited. He's very excited. Of course. He's so stoked. Yeah. He Dude, says, he's quote, built a giant person. Uh, he hasn't done it yet, but. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he says, quote, a new species would bless me as its creator and source. Many happy and excellent natures would owe their being to me. No father could claim the gratitude of the child so completely as I could should deserve theirs. Pursuing these reflections, I thought if I could bestow animation upon lifeless matter, I might, in process of time, although I now find it impossible, renew life where death had apparently devoted the body to corruption. So he's just, he's a little, that's a little crazy. That's crazy talk, to be honest. He starts kind of going ape shit here because months pass as he's sequestered in his makeshift makeshift lab of filth. Yeah, and, and it's not really clear where he's getting his stuff. <laughs> where he's getting his parts. Yeah, they parts. don't really go into that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he's getting his parts. Yeah. Mm. Not sure where he's getting his parts. Or he mm. calls them materials. Oh. Um Ugh. Which you you have to make that distinction when you're creating a human. I'm sorry. I, he, I do know where he gets his parts. Yeah, he, he's grave robbing, sorry. right? I, did, I, I have the note right here. I just, I forgot. That's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Victor. I didn't mean to. to where does he uh, get it? Discredit from, his work. From, from the dis- dissecting room and the slaughterhouse. Although I don't Ooh. know what they mean by slaughterhouse because Ooh, what's the slaughterhouse slaughter for humans? humans? Is that... Is Slaughterhouse Five about that? Because I haven't read that book yet. Is that what that's uh, about? Now, see, now we're mixing universes. We're mixing literary universes. Yeah, yeah it's like Avengers. Yeah. We can't do that. My bad. Yeah, no. We can't do that. It's yeah. super confusing when when people show up in Avengers, like the guys from Guardians of the Galaxy. I get so confused. So I won't yeah. do that to you guys. So he's taking yeah. all the, he's taking all these body parts back to his workshop, which is in a solitary nice. chamber or rather cell at the top of the house and okay. separated from all the other apartments by a gallery and a staircase. Okay. And he becomes which isn't much. No. That's not much separation. That's not no. a lot. I mean, Feel like you should be able to hear someone tinkering on a large corpse. Well, you know, I mean, they probably door. knew he was tinkering, but how you're not? It's unclear to know. You, I'm sure it smelled, right? Yeah, that's the, that's what I'm more worried about—the smell. I don't. Yeah, think how the do they hearing. keep the parts? Yeah, how do they from, keep the parts? From, I like, mean, he's been studying uh, this his whole life. He knows how. To, I mean, he would know how better than anyone else. We. Oh wait, actually, I know that answer. What? Paprika. 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 The answer for everything. This episode sponsored by Paprika. Paprika. Yeah, so he's he's so consumed by his work over these summer months that he also forgets to write home. He's a Ooh. man possessed and obsessed, and in hindsight, he recognizes how unhealthy this obsession, or really any obsession, truly is. In fact, sure. he says, "If the study to which you apply yourself has a tendency to weaken your affections and to destroy your taste for those simple pleasures in which no alloy can possibly mix, then that study is certainly unlawful. That is to say, not befitting the human mind." Which it's glad he recognized that in hindsight, but you know, too little, too late, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, um, and the dude, he basically works for a year without lifting his head up either. Mm. Um, and he's like, he's taunting himself with this checkpoint of repose that you know won't come until this creation is finally realized. Uh, and he starts to lose his fucking mind, as Taylor was just saying. Starts, yeah. yeah I'd say at the point where he's reading old occult classics and trying to reanimate slaughterhouse body parts i think i think you're pretty much in the clear that you've lost your mind i mean i don't know that you start i think he started down that road unfortunately but yeah okay this is where he starts to lose his mind okay 
And then we we get into chapter five, which is the night that Frankenstein brings his dead body to life. And dun, dun, I think dun, the dun, listener's dun. gonna have to wait. Oh my god! Not only is the listener gonna have to wait, but I'm gonna have to wait. Man, great job, guys! Once again, I gotta commend you on your research. I gotta commend you for actually reading the book because I gotta tell you, after listening to you guys recap it, I could never read that. That sounds like a lot of information that I could not absorb into my well, tiny. It would tiny be brain. like reading a biography on yourself, Bjorn. And that's yeah, and that's fun. a little too close to home. While I mean, maybe I would eat a deviled egg during it so I can have that paprika that's a three fur right there for you guys um thank you for joining us on we want to sound smart parties thank you to al and thank you for taylor brown for your wonderful research cannot wait to listen to part two of three of frankenstein on the next episode where we will delve into how victor frankenstein actually makes the monster and probably a lot of other questions are we going to find that monster on the ice are we going to hear some more frame narratives are we going to uh are we going to get those body parts um Join us next episode. Visit us at smartparties.com for all things related to the podcast. And thank you for listening. Books.